Okay, this was, this was my chat with Henry Innes. So Henry is co-founder of Mutiny, uh, a sort of technology data consulting business here in Melbourne. I've actually done a bit of work with them at the beginning of the year. Very interesting uh, business. Uh, Henry's a very clever and interesting uh, guy. We talked about predictive analytics, which is the kind of core of their business. Also, um, uh, Herd, which is a, an app they've developed in response to the um, current health situation, and you know, and a few other things. We talked about why perhaps agencies need to be uh, more product focused rather than uh, you know creative talent focused uh, uh, things like that. Anyway, um, it's about an hour. Very interesting uh, chat. Um, so. Here's uh, Henry Innes. So, hello mate. Welcome to the, uh, the third edition of this, uh, of this uh, I'm calling it a radio show, not a podcast. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's got a podcast these days, but not everyone's got a radio show. So listen, just uh, just to start, so um, do you want to give us a little bit of, uh, I guess the first thing is, you know, here's a, here's a sort of question, because you, you didn't, so in your career, you've not really messed about, have you? Because you just sort of came in and thought, after a couple of years, thought, right, I'm not doing this working work, I'm going to start my own thing. Uh, and, and sort of did that quite quickly. Was that, you know, how did that, was that always the sort of plan? We, you know, we sort yeah, of uh, no, entrepreneurial that, 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 as, a, as a youngster. That, 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 that was always the plan, yeah. Well, I, I actually had a tuck shop in, in high school. Then I, had a, and then I had a business, funnily enough, in artificial intelligence in high school where, um, where I created world, uh, artificial intelligence bots for World of Warcraft characters, leveled them up and sold them on eBay. So right. it's always been a field yeah. of interest of mine. Um, uh, I think, you know, um, when I set out in my career, I quite deliberately saw agencies as a relatively quick route to getting credibility quite fast because they tended to promote very hard workers very quickly. Right. Um, um, versus management consultancies, which are a little bit more more static. So that's kind of one of the reasons I made. I was interested in agencies. Um, I thought marketing was a fairly, and agencies generally were a fairly loose discipline, playing into a more digitised kind of era. Um, and so, and so, I kind of thought that they would be quite a good pathway. Um, I think my my old man probably had a little bit to do with that as well. He he saw agencies as a heavily disrupt as a business category that would be heavily disrupted and beset by change and told me that in 2011 right. um, and said there would be big problems. And he said, where there's big problems, young entrepreneurial people can create very disruptive businesses. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I always took a view and in my, in my career, I took a view that I wanted to get to a national strategy director position as quickly as humanly possible, basically. Yeah. Um, and with that be have enough credibility to have been talking to CMOs, have a wide enough diaspora network to kind of yeah. start my own business, viewing the kind of big agencies as more networking for the end goal than, yeah. um, than necessarily money, money or, or anything. So as an example, when I was, when I was uh, in, in one of those large strategy positions in one of the large corporations, I had a very senior title, but I can tell you I was not getting paid correspondingly. And I always just said to my bosses, I would take lower pay in exchange for better, better title and credibility because I knew uh, that my end was mutiny, okay. um, or a version of. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know the name would be mutiny then. So, so you're the you know, you're I, the one you're the one to blame for job title inflation. Yes, basically. <laughs> yeah, so, so I saw job job title inflation as a path to uh, as a path to entrepreneurial credibility. Yeah. Sense, yeah. um, I, and that was and that was what I was using it for. So, yeah. so, 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 yes, I, I kind of always say that. I, I was always very into data. I've always been into 
to, to coding and computers and, and, and that side of things. Yeah. Um, as I was coming up through strategy, I think my kind of point of difference was I was always able to run my own little models using Python scripts and things like that. Right that yeah. would give me a way to calculate commercial advantage or commercial outcomes, yeah. which always made me a little bit of a golden child in a pitch. So it always yeah. got you very exposed to new business. It got you yeah. very exposed to, because everyone would go, oh, can we get Henry to do a commercial model on that? Yeah. Um, it gave you a bit of an edge in agencies, I think, as well. And, uh, and, and absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I've always been surprised how, you know, particularly in planning departments, uh, the sort of lack of, I mean, not that I'm a mathematician by any stretch, but I've got a basic understanding of statistics uh, and stuff, and uh, but it's actually quite rare. Uh, well, I think I think I think agency planning departments and strategy departments in particular, they tend to have a lot of human insight, but not a lot of commercial insight. Yeah. Um, and and what that tends to drive is it tends to drive a disconnect between the priorities of the work, which are typically set by the planner or the strategist based on that human insights and the priorities of the business. And I, I always thought that agency planners would make themselves a lot more relevant if they could marry up commercial insight with human insight effectively, yeah. Yeah. or at least connect the human insight to some sort of commercial grounding. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, that's a good little sort of segue into, into sort of mutiny, which is, so it's your sort of consulting firm company I think I'm, uh, I'm conscious not to say agency um yeah yeah you know my <laughs> that. yeah yeah so um, um you know so I guess um how did that uh, you know because you've got a we've, we've spoken about this before but your sort of model for that you're sort of operating within the marketing and comms environment but also outside of it at the same time how did uh, yeah how, so so, so I, 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 I've always framed it as, as commercial growth, as has Matt, who is the other founder. Mm. Um, so we all, we always sort of, we always sort of, um, you know, I, I, I think you've kind of got to look at the genesis of the business advisory, the business advisory that sits out there in the market. Yeah. It's some, um, you know, PwC, McKinsey, Bain, all those businesses, and they come from a culture of cost cutting, right? Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to cost cut your way to growth, really hard. You have to invest your way to growth and you have to have theses and models and assumptions and an element of risk in how you build those models um, to, to, that, to then forecast to them. And, and so I think that we saw that as the big, big gap. We saw that agencies had the right attitude in terms of risk taking, but what they lacked was the understanding of numbers and data to then uh, model that attitude into clear financial and commercial outcomes. So that's really where we started in the business. We kind of went, well, we think there's a business for this. If, if McKinsey and Bain are charging 500 grand to do a report on cost cutting, why wouldn't someone pay 500 grand for a report on, on, on investing in growth? Yeah. Um, particularly on the CMO side where their agency partners weren't giving that, them that advice because the, Media guys were so focused on getting the right price for media. So their primary pricing engagement was always to try to price the media businesses rather than price commercial outcomes on client side. And the creative agencies just didn't understand commerce at all because they devalued it and just said creativity is inherently valuable. So, and what they did by doing that is they devalued their own commercial position in a sense. So, so we saw that gap. Um, I, I would have seen that gap probably 18 months ago. And I just took a view that actually there would be a, a very interesting business in that space. I then looked at who else was kind of operating in that commercial growth space. And the only people really people like analytic partners who were doing yeah. kind of econometric modeling, but they were looking at it in a very narrow way. And so I yeah. thought if you built a broader business around that thesis, uh, you built a broader business that had both products to 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 turn noise into signal, yeah. and then you had strong consultants who could sit off the back of those products and then help clients to know what to do and where to grow and where to invest for growth. You'd have something really interesting with that that kind of pairing. Yeah, because <clears throat> you, know, you mentioned like media agencies, so I know I haven't sort of been in them. Um, 
you know, they're quite keen to give the illusion of of a, a product. You know, so I'm not, you know, at one agency that shall remain nameless. Uh, you know, we had, you know, we'd have a slide where it was like our tool set, you know, and it was like a hundred of these little logos and tools. Each one was really just. A I don't stick. think. I don't think. Well, I think firstly, you know, I don't think an agency would know what a product was if it hit him in the face. Well, I was um, going to say that for because because you, you've productized the. Uh, the water platform, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so. I mean, you have to write. So, I, I think there's, there's there's a couple of fundamental issues um, with agencies and products. One, if you're going to have a product, you have to have a PNL that operates like a product product line. Agency PNLs don't operate around products, so they don't fund products correctly. So they never put enough investment in them. They never have senior management leaders around them and things like that. Yeah. Now. WPP arguably has some has some products in in Zaxxis in particular, um, so they have media inventory trading products, but they're basically enabled. Um, but what those products typically are meant to do is um, is that they are that they operate more as internal infrastructure rather than value to client. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So and. And I think that's where they run into problems because they don't have the pressure from client. They don't have the pressure of monetization on them. So the products end up not being very good. Um, Because when a product doesn't have the pressure of monetization and you're kind of forced by head office to use it everywhere um, because, you know, they might be, and and I'm not saying WPP does this, but I do know that other agencies do this with their tool set. They force them to use it because they're probably banking a little bit of margin on the back end. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, that that is probably why um, they're forcing their local officers doing it. So when you have those priorities wrong, it's then hard to create. It, you're not forced to create value in the product. Yeah. And then and then what tends to happen is the product tends to atrophy. It doesn't have strong leadership. It doesn't have strong vision towards clients in the future. And mm. it tends to just start to lose its relevance a bit. Because yeah. um, well, you, get, you get into a, 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 the answer is X. You know, now, what's the problem? Instead of, that's right. Instead of looking for problems that your product can solve. That's right. That's right. And, and, you, and you're not kind of trying to just create adjustments and new things and things like that. So, so you know, I think the agencies certainly do have their, their, their tool sets. I think they would probably be, but, you know, I've seen two categories of that. I've seen categories where they're licensing a tool set and then passing it off as their own or, yeah. or they're licensing infrastructure and putting it into their own front end or their own centralized yeah. management. Yeah. And that's not really a product. What that is is an aggregation. It's a configuration yeah. of an existing yeah. set of products. And I think that's very common. Now, I think on the other side, when they do have products, in particular in the media side, trading products, um, they're typically used, uh, the the key value that they're bringing to the business is margin enrichment at some point of of the media supply chain, not value to client. And and so those products tend not to be as useful or as helpful on the day-to-day of the work and of making the clients work better because that's not why they're making their money. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, <clears throat> you know, a lot of um, things are a sort of almost a smokescreen for business as usual, you know, so it's kind of, it gives the impression to the market. Oh, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about AI and stuff in a minute, because <clears throat> there's a lot, a lot of people will claim, you know, to be using some sort of AI type application to do this. Or that. But really, uh, what's going on in the background is just is the same as it ever was, but there's a, yeah. it's a veneer. They're probably plugging in a couple of different stacks from, you know, Google Marketing Platform or Salesforce and a few few other things like that or, or any of the other, uh, other number of ad tech providers or, or or they've got something to send their bids out and do budget management and things yeah. like that. You know, I, I know one agency who was claimed they had a product and it was, Google Sheets that were hooked up through a connector to a DSP. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but but but, the, but they still said it was a product. So, yeah. yeah. So, I think there's a lot of that kind of going on. Um, I think, you know, to have, to really nail the product side, particularly in technology, you have to have technology 
leaders and people who really fundamentally understand technology and product and data and code. I mean, as you know, in uh, in the mutiny office, you know, I'm over every single detail of that product. It's run in an agile product management function. Yeah. There is no client life that goes into our development team because they aren't billable at all. And, and you know, and it's run on very specific principles, all of which is coded up by developers who've got master's degrees or PhDs. So they're yeah. proper serious technical people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it takes technical muscle for that. And I think, you know, you can only make that sort of investment in talent if your PNL looks like a product PNL as well, because yeah. the challenge with, with, you know, what we're doing is our talent pool is typically we you compete against Google at Lassie and those kinds of companies for it. You can't right. have that person in an agency context because they're too expensive for the client to buy. Right. Um, if you're monetizing them through client fees or an agency commission or something like that, it's, it's, it's too pricey. They're not even in yeah. the same, they're not even yeah. in the price range of agencies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talking about, um, you know, the sort of the, the tech and stuff like that. I mean, in simple terms. Uh, so, I mean, the way, you know, I've been talked about this before at the, at the sort of core of, uh, of war chest is, a uh, uh, is predictive modeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, data analytics, but it's not, um, you know, lo lots of people will, uh, will, will have some sort of market mix model type offering but how so how is war chest sort of uh, different from that what, um... yeah so, so, so it's a good question so i think you've got to look at where market mixed modeling has has historically sat um so historically it's been done relatively manually it's been done through things like regression yeah. um and and people using different regression tests to understand the different weightings yeah. of, of, of of different parts of media um what there are two components to what we've done uh, you couldn't have done what we did have done two years ago because you didn't have the cloud processing power was so expensive that the capital cost to executing what we're doing and scaling it up and down would have right. just been enormous so so i think the kind of ch the big change in the market has been the emergence of the cloud which has made it really easy to scale up and scale down large yeah. machine learning analytics projects so that's the yeah. first change i think and and what that did is it changed the cost structure of the analytics industry so previously if we wanted to use machine learning you needed to really be in a university with a supercomputer um oh, yeah. now we don't need to be because yeah. we've got it all distributed because we've got this distributed cloud cloud computing power what that's meant is we've been able to build a system um, which is proprietary using a number of machine learning techniques that effectively allows us to use historical data to brute force the, uh, the statistical parameters or boundaries. So, yeah. you know, how much weighting do I, do I assign to this or what does this pattern look like? Rather than having a human set that boundary or set yeah. that weighting, the machine does that for us. Right. Um, so the machine can then go through, look at a client's historical data and then effectively construct the boundaries of a model to then at one predict what the ROI was or, yeah. or the likely sales contribution was uh, per yeah. media, uh, per media channel, uh, whichever way a client wants to segment it. You know, they could do premium TV versus daytime TV if they wanted yeah. to. We can put yeah. it to accept anything. Um, and the second thing that they can do is then they can use that to predict or scenario plan um, into the future where the machine will identify a similar scenario that has worked previously or historically and, yeah. and gone through. Now, will that tell, if you've got the best new creative campaign in the world, um, will, will we be able to predict if that works? No. But right. what we can certainly do is we can certainly get what I call investment allocation or the allocation of money and yeah. budget yeah. Um, about 10% better. And when right. you're talking about a spend of a hundred million for some brands or even yeah. 10 million, yeah. getting 10% better has a massive, massive result. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we, we always say to clients that, that we don't, we don't, 
predictive analytics doesn't reinvent things. Um, yeah. What it does is it may, helps you make better decisions to get to better places yeah. um, and, and it will never be perfect. And I think you can kind of see that in the recent coronavirus stuff, right? Yeah. Where we had all these medical models, know they weren't correct, yeah, and they mm -hmm. weren't 100% correct at forecasting impact. Did they get us to a better place than we would have been if we'd let it uh, run rampant um, throughout the world? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so you know, okay. so, so yeah. I think, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, the, the problem with that is, you know, it was still a human problem because the models were all there, uh, but, but, you know, but people chose not to, not to heed them. Uh, oh, yeah, and, yeah. Know. You know, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, I think what, what, to kind of answer your question about predictive analytics, what machine learning allows us to do is it allows us to have an infinitely more complex model yeah. and execute and test and run that model on different scenarios much, much quicker than we ever did yeah. before. So yeah. the machine is learning when the model fits and when it doesn't yeah. rather than, rather than a human learning and testing yeah. that. And I guess so, it can, and you know, cause humans are, you know, you're limited as a, as a human, you know, with how many variables you can sort of take into account, but obviously the machine doesn't care. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and humans also kind of, you know, you know, they might forget something or the, or, yeah. or they might overlook a factor and, and, yeah. and things like that. Machines are a little bit more process driven than humans. Um, yeah. No, they can't think creatively, but once we set the right process and right parameters for them, which is what we've done with War Chess, yeah. you, can get them, you can get them pretty good. Now, constructing that kind of software is incredibly complicated. You know, as yeah. I said before, you know, you know, guys have either been doing machine learning since they were 14, which, you know, in my case I have, or, you know, guys with, PhDs have written 30 papers on the stuff and guys with master's yeah. degrees in data science. But, yeah. but you know, but it is doable. Yeah, that's funny because I, I remember uh, many, many years ago when I was doing, uh, I, I was a creative director at this online gaming uh, mm -hmm. company back in the day, right? This was about 2000 or something, uh, but all of our developers, uh, uh, the, develop the back end development was all done out in Israel. And these were all guys mm -hmm. that had been Israeli army rocket scientists hmm. you know? <laughs> so yeah. you know those kind of skills were transferable into any you know oh one one hundred percent i think you know a lot of agency people have bad misconceptions about data so you don't necessarily want them being being the people that you talk to about data either because you know yeah. most of the people i know I know in data and agencies have probably come from a search or social or programmatic background yeah. and extrapolating those skills up rather than fundamentally understanding data and data yeah. science and how to test hypotheses with different methods. Yeah. I mean, if you spoke about regression or neural networks with 90% of 90% um, of different agency uh, agency people, they wouldn't know much deeper than linear regression, I would suspect. Yeah. Or, or certainly if they knew, they wouldn't know how to apply, say, multivariate regression testing to a, to a particular scenario. They wouldn't under necessarily understand the difference between linear and nonlinear data and, yeah. and those sort of elements. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's me, you know, so linear regression, that's about as deep as I can, I can go yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know. um, so in terms of, um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I, I, you know, a thing that comes up that you say, and you talk about data integrity, right? So mm. just in sort of simple, in layperson's terms, I mean, what, what, what would you uh, describe as the difference between good and bad? Data and, well, I, I, and, I think there's a really interesting case playing out right now around coronavirus, um, right. which is sorry, I just got to. That's a corona coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's what we call corona sneeze. Um, but um, but but so I think there's an interesting case playing out around coronavirus, where whereby you have these statistics being released on fatality rate at the moment yeah. um and what we're finding is that um the initial fatality rates on coronavirus um and you know and i'll just caveat this by saying i'm no epidemiologist so i'm more reading what other epidemiologists have said and looking and yeah. trying to just use the analogy um 
what 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 happened early on in coronavirus is is we had limited testing so therefore um we could only test people with really severe cases who yeah. who who are in who were in trouble for it basically mm-hmm. and 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 therefore the case uh, and so the people who we identified and confirmed as a case typically had a severe case so they were more likely to die mm-hmm. um and what that did did is it skewed the data with bad mm. data. Confirmed cases we were reporting wasn't necessarily a true or accurate reflection of how mm. many cases there actually were. What yeah. that meant is that the assumption around fatality rate was fundamentally flawed because yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, of course, the more you test, the more you're going to find. Um, but it will, you know, in absolute terms, will be more, but proportionately. It would be it would be fewer would, correct correct yeah. so your fatality rate starts to decrease as volume of intesting uh, testing increases i mean i think iceland found that did did, a, did what's called a sample test where they just tested everybody randomly yeah. and and they and they found that 50 percent of carriers were asymptomatic um right. so that was an example of, of of bad data because one we thought that lots of people would show symptoms um, uh, when really a lot more didn't show symptoms and that meant mm. community transmission was higher than we mm. thought. So it was an example of a bad, bad data creating a bad decision. And two, we thought the case fatality rate was much higher than it was, which is why we may have had, we may see, although this is yet to play out, but you know, would the, would the levels of hospitalization that were predicted with a, with a rampant spread be be accurate they may not be so what that what that initial bad collection of data or, or data that didn't have strong integrity because as well different countries were testing differently that then meant that some of the assumptions that were being made weren't necessarily correct and i think in marketing there are interesting examples of this happening one is the classic um asking your existing customers what they want, what they want, uh, what they want, and then using that data to market to new customers. Mm. Um, it, that's a fundamentally flawed piece of mm. data collection because what it will tell you is only what your existing segment likes, not potentially mm. what new segments like. Yeah. So it's an example. That's the, of, yeah, yeah, the sort of NPS type, uh, you know, which is, uh, it's, you know, as a customer satisfaction metric, it's got some value, but I mean, it doesn't. Uh, again, it doesn't tell you anything about anyone else. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So a, 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 a NPS, which ironically was invented by a consultancy, um, yeah. and, co. um yeah. uh, a, 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 and, and NPS, it was kind of fundamentally used in, in a fairly different way. And it was kind of, it was kind of used by all these guys, to, uh, to, to understand product. And then, then it kind of bled into marketing. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, so I think there are different data, day, data points, both in collection and verification. It can be bad. The other thing as well that we, we've noticed, you know, sometimes data integrity, sometimes people just make mistakes when they upload data. Humans are humans. Yeah. So yeah. you have to have checks to make sure that, that I think the fun the point around data integrity is checks to ensure that the data is accurate and an accurate reflection of the situa- situation mm. and that you have verified its accuracy in some yeah. way. I mean, you've got, you know, potentially in a lot of client organizations, they have access now to more data than, than they've ever had. But, but I mean, to your earlier point, they're not employing the right people to look at that. Uh, so it's a perfect storm here where you've got someone who doesn't That's know right. what to I mean, at, you know, but, you know, I think I think if you went out to most clients in the market and you kind of said, "Well, what's your process for verifying that data is correct? Um, what's your process for doing that?" I think you get a blank look from most people, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think many many large organisations have that kind of process in there. Now, if you're looking at ops data or operations data, it's not so much of a big problem. Um, but if you're looking at, say, marketing data from a third party around media impressions and ad fraud, 
be a huge yeah. problem if you're not verifying yeah. your data because you might actually be getting impressions reported back that weren't actually impressions. So, you know, yeah. looking at things like ad fraud and things like that, that's yeah. a kind of data verification. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I think people underestimate the scale of ad fraud as well. I mean, it's just, uh, um, it, it's horrific, you know? But I think oh, what, I what's, what's more peculiar is, you know, certain, because I've spoken to, uh, you know, certain CMOs who, um, they're happy, you know, they'll just, they're happy to build that in because it's so cheap. They accept the, they accept the level of fraud anyway. Uh, as just, well, uh, I, 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 think, I think, again, it, this, this comes from lots of people call ad fraud a human problem or something like that. But, you know, I think it is a, it's another technology problem. You can pretty easily pick up ad fraud by, by using some basic clustering. If more than three impressions behave exactly the same way, classify them as ad fraud. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a pretty easy way to pick up about 90% of it. Um, right. And you can do it through certain, uh, and you can make it look, look the same thing, look for the same thing. You just need machines looking for the patterns. I think, yeah. you know. So are you, of, you're, you're, you're building that into a uh, war chest just, just now, aren't you? Are you? Yeah, well, it's about six weeks away, but yes, right. we are we are building it because because I think you know some of the um, I, I think being able to predict the cost of ad fraud on a campaign would be quite a powerful thing for marketers, yeah. and I think yeah. you know helping them reduce the volume of ad fraud is is only is only a good thing. I think there'll always be an element of ad fraud in the market, yeah. but I think you know. We can probably get it down to five to ten percent rather than the thirty percent it typically is. Yeah. And I do know as well that a lot of marketers are sophisticated enough that they are removing bots and ad fraud from yeah. uh, using Google Analytics already. Yeah. So they're yeah. already picking up on it. They're already reducing it um, quite well. So, so you know, you, you just kind of got 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 to see really, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder. I wonder if uh, during this sort of weird period that we're going through, uh, you know, if that's gonna gonna be a sort of this is gonna be an event that sort of flushes a lot of that out when when you know when maybe brands you know pause a lot of digital ad spend and then you know uh, notice you know that after six to eight weeks that despite the fact that they weren't spending anything, nothing much has changed. Uh, you know, you might might wonder then on some of the value um yeah yeah i and it, and it's funny because i think you know big brands in particular will experience that i think smaller brands with smaller shares of voice will yeah. atrophy quite quickly so you might see some 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 of these smaller brands coming out more aggressively i think because you know we always know that that a smaller brand sales because we do have a relatively small brand on the war chest platform at the moment and that whenever they drop off marketing spend, their sales atrophy really quickly. Right. Um, whereas you know the bigger brands, they tend to be more stable. Um, yeah. Yeah, stable, but so that I mean that would be a sort of double jeopardy type effect there anyway. That's that's right. I, I I kind of have a bit of a hypothesis that some brands may stop stop a lot of advertising because they're big and they start to create value of it or at least reduce mm. it quite a bit coming out of this recession and the challenger brands uh, might quite radically increase them combined with, I think there'll be quite a few e-commerce brands coming out up out of this. I think there will be a few entrepreneurial people thinking that way or, 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 you know, even Amazon trying to tackle a new category like fresh food, a little bit more yeah. comprehensive in Australia and, and the combination of a de de decreasing spending on the big incumbent, with a massively increased spend uh, of the challenger, might just see a few brand positions start to flip coming out of yeah, this. Uh, yeah. Not through, not through any changes to consumer behaviour, just to uh, changes to, uh, to to kind of you know to changes to how people uh, behave coming mm. in and out of it. Mm. I mean, when, you know, I, I wondered a few weeks ago when everyone seem to sort of briefly go mad for uh, for a toilet roll uh, i thought you know mm -hmm. actually this you know for the bigger brands in that category this is not really what they want because it's bringing a lot of sales 
forward. Uh, you know, the, mm. it would have happened down mm. the line anyway. But the um, the for the smaller brands, it was it was great because you know because uh, yeah. uh, they were getting a bigger share of the category than than they would normally get. Yeah, um, well, I I think I, I think you know the toilet paper toilet paper thing. Everyone forgets how delicate global supply chains are. You know, yeah. we, we we built them up as these big, elaborately created data-driven masterpieces where we yeah. think we're, where, the, where the kind of manufacturing guys think they can predict exactly how much stock to move everywhere based on a whole bunch of varieties. And they're basically yeah. basing it off a model. Now, if they yeah. get that demand 5% wrong either way, it's okay. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the toilet paper thing, skip, fucked their models up by about 60% or yeah. so. And so yeah. they were emptying out every morning even though yeah. they were shipping more stock and it was, it was causing problems. I thought it was quite ironic because it, it showed how reliant a lot of the major supermarket chains were on models and on those models yeah. not being disrupted. Well, they kind of, because, you know, it, they, they operated almost a sort of just-in-time type sort of replenishment thing. So they don't have huge warehouses to restock stuff. It was all... Uh, as you say, you know, it been modelled based on sort of demand and then you get a change to that demand and they just don't have, it's not that the stock's not there, it's just, it's in the, it's in the warehouse, which is... But that's you know, right, and, and, every, yeah. and everyone forgets that their warehouses operated far more like distribution centres yeah. than, like, uh, than they did as storage centres. So you had a central mm. storage area, and I only know this having worked it with a couple of different CPG businesses, um, uh, but, uh, you know, that, that they kind of had a central storage repository and then mm. they kind of had all of these, um, all of these warehouses more as distribution centers for, for, and logistical centers than actual storage. Yeah. So let's, okay, this is probably a good, uh, a good sort of link into the, um, the app that you've made. So, uh, the herd. Uh, app in response to the sort of health situation so mm. that i mean that that went from presumably well that, hey this is an idea and then you'd made it within just a sort of few days um yeah or it seemed like that is that how it yeah well I, I yeah i i had the idea i suppose we better explain what the app uh, is first yeah just, so uh, so, so as probably a lot of people know one of the fundamental issues around coronavirus is uh, is contact tracing. So the ability yeah. to trace who you've been in contact with if you've been infected to identify who else might be infected and breaking what's called an infection chain. So mm. so in, in tech, we understand that for a slightly different concept, a concept called a mesh network. Um, right. A mesh network is is a network of phones that create their own mini internet that was used in the Hong Kong protest, I think in 2014, but don't quote right. on that. Um, and it was basically a way for phones to communicate without using the mainstream internet um, mm. through an internet-like system. So different phones could connect to each other and things like that. So, a bit, so, like, a bit like airdropping, for instance, between yeah, yeah. iPhones, yeah. Yeah, same concept. And and what we kind of realised on um, on contact tracing, China was doing it, but they basically just backdoored WeChat, um, mm. which you know, Chinese government, authoritarian government, they can do. Singapore mm. had done it. They'd had a few issues with it, um, and and the issues were around data privacy and also Bluetooth work, working with different various different devices and cross device. Mm. Um, so we thought, well, can we, can we execute on something much quicker and more effectively um, for, uh, and just build something and then just offer it up to the government for free. And so that was kind of the view we took on it. Um, I thought, you know, we, we you know, whilst I don't know the first thing about epidemiology or anything like that, I do know a hell of a lot about data. I do know a, lot, mm. a lot, hell of a lot about how to build data products and analysis engines. And I did know that those data collection points were all there on the phone. They might need to be hacked a bit, but they were certainly, yeah. they certainly existed. And I knew the format that they existed in. 
So what we did is we kind of just said, righto, let's just build this thing. Let's just build build an analysis engine and a structure on it. We did it on Google Cloud. Um, I mean, Google Cloud for us is is always our central infrastructure. We, we think it's yeah. fantastic. Um, uh, I'm not sponsored by Google yet, but Google, if you want right. to pay some cloud bills, I'd love for you to. Um, um, but, um, uh, but so kind of what we did was we, we went through and we took a view that, uh, that we could build this thing. The way it works is basically people opt in for the app to collect location data, opt in to let it do a, a, a Bluetooth data transfer with other mm -hmm. app users nearby and opt in to let it collect data off your Wi-Fi connections as well. So it gives mm. us three different points of analysis to see if someone has been within close proximity of someone mm. else on the network. That data is all stored locally on their phone, mm. um, not centrally. And this is a key difference between how Singapore and, 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 and how other governments want to do it. Um, because for, for Australians to trust this thing, there can't be a central repository of data the mm. government can just access to figure out, you know, when you've been to the pub and things like that. That's not yeah. how it can work for it to work in a democracy. Um, so the data is all stored locally. Um, when someone is infected, uh, um, and, you know, there are obviously areas to work through, but the idea is, is that they would opt to mark themselves as infected and then right. send that data to the cloud to help, basically is their civic duty. But a gov you could see a government theoretically mandating it or get allowing the police to get a warrant around it or something like that. Mm. When that data is uploaded to the cloud, it's sent out on a schedule to then uh, to all your phones. So your phone can then check whether or not you've been infected locally. Right. Now, it's pretty sophisticated how we've done done the check and selected which data to push where it's based on a whole heap of different factors. So, so, so that we don't burn heaps of battery life and slow mm. down your phone. But basically that allows us to then go through and send you a notification if you've been exposed or send you a notification if someone you know has been exposed and you should also get tested. So it allows yeah. us to get one step ahead of the virus as well on the yeah. network. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the idea being that, that you can make lockdowns far more targeted than they are because right now we're doing blanket lockdowns to complete to, to, to try to stop the virus. But my yeah. view is that's not sustainable. Um, and the future yeah. of it would be technology. Now, the decentralized nature of it means that you still own your location data, your Bluetooth data, your Wi Fi yeah. data unless you're opting to share it back or unless there's a good public health reason to share it back. Yeah. Um, so it makes it very hard for governments to then go and use that for a different purpose. And that is why this technology probably didn't exist prior yeah. because it's basically useless for any other use case. Structuring yeah. location data like this makes it useless for everything else but this. Yeah. That's funny, I was listening to, to uh, something the other night um, and some, some guy talking about blockchain things and stuff like that, but it was, uh, you know, he was sort of projecting, um, you know, how much personal health data is going to start to be produced, um, you know, in, in the coming years. And he was talking about blockchain as some sort of uh, decentralized way of, of being able to record that data, but it not being centrally. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I didn't really understand it to be fair. So well, well it's, it's not dissimilar conceptually to block blockchain in terms of how yeah. you're how you're trying to structure it. I think the difference is is that is that you're not having everyone join together on one ledger because you right. don't need everyone to be contributing to a ledger. So that's why it's not right. blockchain. Right. Because um, a, a blockchain ledger as well as transparent to everybody too. And I don't think everyone wants their location data transparent to everybody. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Right. Let's just sort of, um, that's nearly an hour. So I'll try and keep these things to under an hour. So we'll, do, we'll wrap it up now. But I just wanted to, um, the thing we sort of talked about just before we started recording. So is this, um, uh, this idea of um, of product centric agencies or or you know companies or whatever uh, and mm. and how uh, and so you you tweeted this the other day and I expected uh, a sort of hail of abuse which didn't didn't happen 
because uh, it was so easily misinterpreted. Uh, I think I know what you meant, but um, you know, uh, you, you talked about talent uh, no longer being a competitive advantage for for agency. Well, well so I, I I don't think talent has ever been a competitive advantage for agencies. Yeah. Really, let me start it by by saying that I think. Yeah. I think, you know, if you look at culture, and I'll start with culture and the culture of a place, um, I, my belief is that culture is a system of social processes more so than it, more so than it is uh, made up of individuals. Um, I also think that great businesses are built on processes, not, uh, not chaos, particularly ones that scale well. Um, and I think what agencies have kind of tended to do is the media landscape has fragmented and gotten a bit chaotic and things like that. They've said, oh, well, you know, you need talent to deliver the best in creativity and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. Now, that anyone will know that if you're constantly generating something completely different to what you've generated before, you don't have the requisite knowledge or experience to do that very profitably. So you typically run on a very, very low margin. Um, mm or no margin at all, because you just don't know how to do it. Like if you don't know how to do something, it's very, very hard to make. I think, you know, if you look in the late, if you look at the late nineties and uh, uh, media and creative agencies were basically production lines for buying ads on the one hand. So media agencies were really good at buying ads and creative agencies were really, really good at making stories to fill those pla ad placements, right? Mm the stories that would stand out to fill out, fill out those ad placements. Then, you know, in the 2000s, you had the rise of digital agencies who said they were digitally creative and things like that, but really they did like a couple of things really well. They either were, they either did kind of a, a, a social idea really well. So they're really good at making stuff for social. Um, and, you know, I think VML in its, in its heyday is probably, probably a good example of that. Um, you had agencies that were really, really good at platforms. Um, and you know, an AKQA is arguably mm -hmm. a version of that in Australia, uh, that, that, that is, uh, you had agencies that were brilliant at making big culturally resonant campaigns that went on big spots, big spots and dots. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and that's widening Kennedy. And, and so typically I think you go to agencies tend to have a specific style and a specific, specific product that they're outputting. Um, uh, and as a result, they get their processes right. They, they can target margin improvement. They can get better at doing things because they're doing them more frequently and more often. So agencies kind of go, talent is a competitive advantage. And I kind of go, well, no, I think what agencies need to do is stop focusing on creativity is a super wide thing. That they don't mm. that, that they don't really understand and go what are we actually really good at and shit hot at making and then mm. how do we make those things really interesting and, and mm. seem really interesting to consumers because that's what creative agencies are brilliant at yeah so, so it's more like yeah so you're sort of saying it's more like being for instance a football team you know that have a system and uh, uh you know and players come and go but then you know you bring in new players to fit into that system uh, correct exactly yeah. right Exactly right. Yeah. And you look at, say, DDB, right? Yeah. DDB is a great example of that. They've still got art directors and copywriters. They're still producing some of the best ads in the country. Why? Mm. I think because they stick very clearly to a product and even a house style. You know, mm. they've got a really clear, distinct style of emotional storytelling. They tell some of the best ads in the country. Look at Leo Burnett's work for Bonds. It's all got a mm. fairly similar style to it. Um, yeah. And that, and that's why it's kind of brilliant. Um, you know, you look at Thinkabel. Thinkabel's another fantastic agency and a fantastic success story in Australia, mm. I think. And, you know, and they have a fantastic house style. They really bring to life these great PRable ideas that, that really work, not just by generating, uh, that, that, that work by playing into earned media mm. off, off paid media. And they've got, a, they've got a distinct style about how they do it. I think every sure. great agency that's doing really well has a distinct style to what they do and, mm. and they don't, and they might not even realize it. And, mm. and, and that's how they're making their margin. And I think, you know, if operations people in suits 
in particular started moving away from actually you know we're creative and we can do anything and we can solve any problem I actually said you know what we're really good at doing this sort of thing and this mm. is the type of business we should target and this is mm. the type of type of business we should try to win they won't get a better hit rate on on what they were winning because they'd be better at business qualification two they get better margins because they would just act, their ops people would realize they just need to set up a production line around this mm. and just get really smooth at it and, mm. and and i think it's a way for them to make a lot more money i mean in our yeah. case um we take I think the, the other thing it would stop agencies chasing anything with a budget you know but and getting into ludicrous pitch you know like pitching 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 just for anything because uh the, the market would naturally segment itself, you know, so you'd have like, right, if Vegemite comes up for pitch, you know there's only two or three agencies that have that kind of style that, to take on that kind of work. And they would, and so they would naturally, you know, compete for that. Uh, I remember talking to, um, uh, um, what's his name, Ted, Ted Horan, and, uh, and he was sort of reminiscing about the 70s and, back in the day and it was in that situation he was describing I said if you if you wanted you know you went to mojo for a, if you wanted a particular type of mm. advertising or you went to sachi and sachi for you know for what they did but you would never confuse those two uh, places you know i think he's yeah. done that with, with big red you know because mm. um, you know they have, they're, they're, they're great at a particular kind of thing Oh, I mean, you know, Big, 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 Red, Big Red is a fantastic example of an agency who's just nailed that. You know, yeah. they've absolutely nailed that. You know, that's probably, I don't know, I don't know them that, that well, but, you know, I suspect that's probably why he hasn't sold because he's probably making money hand over fist every year. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, he's probably making too much money. You know, so, yeah. so, so, you know, so I, I, can't, I kind of look at agencies and go, you know, if they, if they productized a lot more, if they focused on that, um, they would be in a much better position. Um, yeah. and, and I think agencies are too afraid to productize because they think it'll compromise creativity, which I think is mm. nonsense. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, listen, thanks for that. Thanks for your knowledge as ever. Uh, no, anything else sort of, that you want to mention? No, no, that I think that covers it all pretty well. Just uh, yeah. go check out War Chest. That's the only plug I'll ever do. Okay. okay.